The Sydney Opera House acknowledges the Gadigal of the Eora Nation, traditional custodians of Tubagali, the land on which the Opera House stands. We honour the long Gadigal history of gathering and storytelling and acknowledge the strength and resilience of First Nations people and communities past and present. Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. I'm your host, Frank Newman, Creative Learning Specialist. This podcast is part of a three-part series featuring conversations curated by influential Finnish educator Parsi Salberg. Professor Parsi Salberg is an educator and author. He has worked as a school teacher, teacher educator, researcher and policymaker advising schools and education system leaders including the World Bank, Finland's Ministry of Education and Culture and Harvard University. He is the recipient of numerous prestigious awards and his many publications inspire teachers and education system leaders around the world. Now the Professor of Education Policy at Southern Cross University, Parsi has a particular interest in reframing how we understand health, play and creativity in learning. In this final episode of our three-part series, Parsi Salberg is joined by Professor Sharon Goldfeld, a paediatrician and director of the Royal Children's Hospital Centre for Community Child's Health and theme director for Population Health at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Also joining the conversation is Anne King, parent at Mossman High School and giving a young person's perspective, a Year 12 student from Mossman High, Will Osborne. The discussion was recorded live at the Sydney Opera House in 2022 and explores the question, what might schools look like if health and well-being were considered one of the basics like numeracy and literacy? Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to be here at the Sydney Opera House, especially in these conversations. Thank you so much for coming. It's, it's amazing to see so many people here this evening. Can I ask you to put your hand up if you consider yourself as a health expert? <laughs> we have Sharon, the only one. <laughs> okay, let me try again. <laughs> Can you put your hand up if you consider yourself as an education expert? Educator, teacher, principal. Ah, you are experts. Okay. Can you put your hand up if you're not sure what you, who you are? <laughs> These days, it's, it's a very common, common thing. Okay. Listen, this is the, as you heard, this is a conversation thing. So I'm going to have these three amazing guests. And we, I'm going to start with them first to speak a little bit about this uh, topic that you heard. Like, imagine if health was all of a sudden considered as a skill. Probably the, the 21st century skill that we try to teach to our kids and it was taught in every single school and seen as important as literacy and numeracy and all those other things. Now, let me ask you this. Again, can you put your hand up if you think that health is one of the most important things in your life? Look around. Almost everyone. Okay? So now my question to you is that, so if, this, if you're right, why we are not teaching health more in every single school to young people? Okay? So one trick this evening is that we are not only having conversation about what is now and what has been, but we're also thinking about what could be in the future. And that's why, you know, the difficulty in this conversation partly is that we're going to invite you to put your creative hat and imagine some of these things that we don't have in the future. Okay? 
So there will be time for you to join us talking about these things, but we want to really see this evening whether we can somehow imagine the future that would be different from now. And you're going to hear during this evening as well why we are going to do this. I know that there are people who say that, what are you talking about? That school should be teaching health as a skill? Who would do that in a school? Teachers are already too busy to do all kinds of other things. And then there are those who say that it's a nice idea, but you know, we don't have money to do that. And then somebody may say that, leave me alone. You know, health is not a, any business of schools. It's a parent's responsibility and right. Or that we have a healthcare system that is taking care of those things. I know all these things, all those questions, and they are good and relevant things. But tonight, I would like to see much more thinking outside of the box. And to see what we will vision when we think about this type of future. Now, let me, um, let me invite here my first guest, Sharon Coldfield from Melbourne. Please join me in welcoming Sharon, <laughs> who... <laughs> it seems like you're the only health expert here, but please sit down. So I doubt You're in good, uh, good hands. But let, let's get to this conversation uh, first with you, uh, Sharon. Thanks for, for your time and, and coming here. And we are working, working together a little bit on this idea. We're going to tell, um, tell about that in, um, in a moment. But since you are the only health expert here tonight, <laughs> I would like to um, uh, start by asking this fundamental question that is, is necessary for this conversation. What, what is health? When we have a conversation about health, what are we talking about? It's a really good question. There's been a lot written about this because... Um Often when people think about health, like if we talk about mental health, they often flip to illness in their minds. So when we talk about mental health, often people are thinking about mental illness. But there's been a lot of work defining health. And the one thing it's not, it's not just the absence of illness. We talk about like the one minus illness. So, you know, if you don't have cancer and if you don't have diabetes and if you don't have chronic illness or you don't have mental illness, therefore you're healthy. That's not it. You can have all of those things and still have great health and well-being and feel good about yourself. And I think we have to be careful that we don't assume that not having an illness makes you healthy. In other words, there's work to be done on being healthy and there's work to be done on managing illness. And I think we kind of sometimes conflate those two things. So in, in the context of uh, this topic that we have here, we talk about education and what school could do. Is it appropriate to use the word health or should we talk about well-being? We often talk about them together because I, I do think out there sometimes people aren't quite sure what we mean by well-being and often when you put health and well-being together the mental model flips to something a little bit more positive whereas if you just talk about health on its own people flip back to that negative model so I think it's useful to talk about health and well-being because I think it drives us into thinking about those positive mm. trajectories but also remembering that there are you know, kids that go to school that do have really significant illness problems or illness conditions that need to be thought about as well. So I feel it's kind of encapsulating, but it, you're absolutely right, it does need to be unpacked. Yeah. Do you need to be a health expert to talk about health and well-being? I sure hope not. <laughs> <laughs> so feel free to say what you think. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Now, um, like the COVID pandemic that is still here uh, has done a lot of... Uh, a lot of things, bad things mostly to um, uh, our, everybody's health and, and perceptions of health and well-being. 
But if we look at the young people, uh, and you, you, this is the field of your expertise here in this country right now, how would you, what would you say about the, the state of health of uh, our young? Yeah, there's a report that's actually out today um, called Fault Lines, which is sort of um, examining what's happened to a whole range of parts of the population, but actually did note um, what's been happening for children. So, um, look, the pandemic has been really difficult for everyone. Every single, it's amazing to think that every single person in this room has been affected by it, but actually every single person in the world has been affected by it. So it's quite extraordinary, really. And thank goodness, children on the whole have been really um, not um, significantly directly affected by the virus itself, which is like, thank goodness, I think everyone wakes up every day saying that. But the indirect effects of lockdown, the indirect effects of not going to school, the indirect effects of parents being stressed, the indirect effects of parents losing their job, the indirect effects of social isolation, those indirect effects turn out to be not so great <coughs> for kids. And what we know from the data that's emerging is, number one, wasn't so great for kids. And we'll see, I think a lot of kids will come out of it and be very resilient, <coughs> but some kids are gonna take longer to come out of it. Second of all, we know that kids who are already living in some form of adversity did worse. And it's probably important to remember, it's not like we all lived you know, equally and life was, you know, we didn't have any kind of utopia before then. But COVID came in, I kind of call it the ooze, and just kind of opened up those cracks and showed us how unequal our society is. And in particular, it's unequal for kids too. So, you know, pre-pandemic, we had two decades of unequal outcomes for kids in school. We haven't been able to shift those inequalities at all. And then, of course, you've all heard about the mental health issues and, I guess, a lot of anxiety out there for kids and how do we manage that? So that's that's not going to be managed by a mental health care system. That's going to be managed by our universal health and our universal education systems. That's, they're going to be absolutely the cornerstones of what we do for children. So that's kind of what we're seeing as we emerge. And this is what's happening around the world. But if I remember correctly, that we were not really celebrating the good young people's children's health before the COVID. Is it correct? Correct. Correct. So just so, to give you an example, in the 2015 mental health survey, mm -hmm. if I just look at mental health, um, one in seven children have a mental health <coughs> disorder. So this is not, um, I'm just feeling bad, like a mental health disorder. And three times the difference between children living in poorer families and richer families. So that was all well before the pandemic. Right, right. So... Um this morning, if you follow the, the news, the, the, there's, a, there's another report out of the, how the government or governments have been dealing with the, the pandemic. Do, do you, I think now it's time also to start to talk about those things, that how well we actually in this country were able to protect people's and young people's health, education and other things. Do you have any opinion on how well things have been actually handled so far? Yeah, so the, it's the Fault Lines report that came out um, this morning and I was fortunate to be one of the informants um, to that report. And there's a couple of really <laughs> important things that came out of it. So there was, um, there was a, a lot of concern about the amount of school shutdown. So in Victoria, we had 40 weeks of school shutdown over those two years. That's a lot of kids not going to school. And, that, and kids, anecdotally, we don't have good data yet, but if you know anyone or you've, your own kids, Everyone knows what it means to have kids not going to school. So um, 
So they were very, very strong on the overuse of whole system school shutdown and uh, strong on overreach, so the closure of borders, the clo all those closures we had, um, curfews, etc. Um, so they were strong in saying that was, there was an overreach, even in the context of everybody not really knowing what was kind of going on and recognising how difficult all the decision making was. Mm -hmm. and, and some pretty cool recommendations going forward, um, one of which was, and um, I'll, I'll just geek out a little bit, which is the importance of data. So, um, and the reason I'm going to geek out is, so for example, we've just been talking about mental health, but actually we don't have very good data on children's mental health right now. We're kind of flying blind. And that makes me very anxious because it means that what we're doing is kind of blunt policy, well-intended, but blunt, because we don't really have the precision to tell us what is going on for kids, where, and how might that change over time. And during the pandemic, the same thing. We just didn't have the data on a daily basis that could tell us what was happening. And people lost trust in that. You know, data are really important when they're transparent because then people trust the system and they understand what the system's telling them and they can respond. And so that combination of lack of data and all of the mixed communications meant people became much less trustworthy of the sort of institutions that previously people had reasonable trust in. But the other thing that was extraordinary was the education workforce. And, you know, talk about pivoting. Um, it was a major pivot, you know, lots of online learning, lots of worrying about kids who don't have online access and, you know, lots of stories of teachers driving around trying to drop things off to kids. I mean, it was... And that's teachers, of course, who have their own children and trying to... So there was just a huge amount of stress um, in the education workforce. Lots of learnings, I think, that will emerge out of that but a huge amount of stress. Yeah, yeah. Now, before I invite the, um, the two other guests, Anne and, and Will, join us, what, one more thing. Uh, I, I know that you also work with the schools and, and principals and teachers in this space. If you, if you look at the, what the schools are doing right now, uh, especially linked to the health and well-being aspect of young people, what do you, what do you see or what, what, how, how do you comment that current, uh, current way of uh, issues? So I think there's huge variety of what goes on in right. schools and and I think you've got everything from people innovating right out there trying to do um, amazing things um, right through to, to principals who feel very constrained by the system and feel unable to do that um, innovation but I think we're still kind of with you know from standing outside and I do I am an outsider so I'll, I'll be um, frank about that I, I have worked for a few years in the education department in Victoria and um, it was a real eye-opener for me um, as a health person coming into an education department and just understanding all those even different languages. I, I call children children. And then I, I walked in the education department and everybody was a student. And I, I really struggled with some of that. Um, but it's just an extraordinary amount of respect for this, um, for this system that does so much good for children, but constrained by what we measure. So we measure, you know, we... we um, value what we measure. So we measure numeracy and literacy. We don't really measure children's health and well-being. And that, that constrains the system. It constrains what people do. And it um, disintegrates um, a holistic child. And most, most people don't think of their children as silos. They think of their children as holistic beings. So mm. there's this kind of disconnect, isn't there, between yeah. The, yeah. this amazing institution called schools 
and our aspiration for children, which is holistic and isn't just segmented into yeah. education and health. And that disconnect is tricky. Thank you. Let me uh, invite Anne and Will. Would you come? And please join me welcoming Anne and Will to the stage. Thank you. All right. So let, let, let me start with, uh, with Will. You have had a very special day today. You, you just finished the uh, three hours of uh, HSC uh, mathematics exam. Yes. So do you, is it true that you have the math formulas written in your hand? I actually do. Um, it's not maths formulas. It was just random doodles and notes and questions so I could talk about them after the exam with everyone else. <laughs> okay. Can you put your hand up again? How, how many of you are parents that you have on children? Most of you. Okay. So you are all experts in this next episode of this conversation. But before I, uh, we, we start this conversation, could you Comments just very briefly, Will, about how the the current uh, system that we have here and many other countries that having this uh, high-stake uh, final examination, how is it affecting your health and well-being? I mean, the HSC probably, as most people know, is extremely stressful. Um, it does have a great impact on me and it does have a great impact on a lot of people. I would be surprised if anyone comes to me and says... The HSC was super good. I loved it. Like, it didn't affect me at all. I, I mean, I dislike the system of the HSC, but I think most people do. Um, it's something that... It's like a hurdle you have to get over. Um, and it does have a negative impact. There's a lot of stress. There is anxiety. Um, but it's something you do have to have resilience for. Some people do, some people don't. So it affects, um, I guess, people on different levels. So the, what is the alternative? Not to have uh, these exams at all? Or? Oh, that's a very left field. That's very creative thinking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, ideally, no. But of course, that's never going to happen. You do need to have this examination. There is things that could happen to make it, I guess, better for students. But it would be... It's very difficult. It's yeah, yeah. the HSC is a bad system, but it works. Okay, and you uh, <laughs> you have three uh, three children in school, right? Yes, I have twelve, fourteen, and seventeen. Okay, so now when, when you listen to this conversation about the, the uh, how things are going in this country, and listen to Will, what are you uh, what are you hearing? How, how do you feel? Um, I feel stressed for our kids. I feel that the HSC is this big thing we all work towards and as parents we're kind of coaching ourselves to get to the HSC and even as a parent of a HSC student now my friends and colleagues will say oh you've got HSC in the house <laughs> like it's all doom and gloom but I think um, it's good for kids to have something to have a measure towards with an exam but wouldn't it be amazing if it wasn't just about this big hurdle they have to get to and you know, a lot of children uh, work better in assessments and things like that. But I think mixing up the way that you can measure your success is really important and not building to this one thing which is supposed to measure your life. Uh, perhaps, you know, I, I think looking back at the HSC, a lot of my colleagues and a lot of people I know will say, well, I, you know, didn't do well in the HSC or I did do well, but I'm not using it now. So I wonder if we have to remember that too yeah, and yeah, yeah. jump forward five years and what does it mean to, to do the HSE, I suppose. Yeah. Sharon, do we have any, any evidence or research about the, uh, how these high-stake examinations and exams are affecting 
young people's health or wellbeing? Well, there's been a lot of work done on the increasing mental health problems in young people, uh, probably over the last two decades. And I was part of a group that was trying to unpack what, what's actually contributing to that. And there's a sense that it's a combination of um, social media, um, climate change and concerns about climate change, a, a lack of sense of control. These, and these are all speculations, by the way, because the, the research isn't that strong. And then underneath it, of course, is all the stress related, um, related to school. I can't tell you the research on high stakes examination because I tend to work in the early childhood area. But I, I can tell you that um, I've had two children go through it. That was pretty high stakes. Um, <laughs> but I do see a lot of young people very stressed. And I think what was very interesting, if I can go back to COVID for just a moment, is the um, increase in eating disorders that occurred but what, what, what you might not be aware is that eating disorders increased everywhere in the world and it increased everywhere in Australia, even in states that didn't have lockdown. So it increased even in Western Australia, but it was worse in Victoria. And so there's something about um, how young people react and, and what supports they have around them, around existential threats, lack of control, all of those sorts of things. So you'll be able to talk about this as lived experience, Will, but um, I think it's a really interesting time in the world when we've got climate change, when we've got things like the pandemic, floods, all of these sorts of things happening. How are kids, what are the resiliences that uh, young people are drawing on and what are things that are getting in the way of that? And then, you know, the question is what can we do to help build those resilience scaffolding for, for young people. Yeah, yeah. Can, can you speak a little bit about how these schools um, today are actually addressing these health and well-being issues? And, and Will is from Mossman High. Do we have a Mossman High principal here in the room? Where are you? Oh, Susan over there. So, so let me rephrase my question. How do you think the other schools than Mossman School? is dealing with the, uh, you, you know, helping, helping people like you and, and your colleagues when the COVID gets tough or difficult in, in health and well-being things. In other words, are we, are we doing, doing a good job currently? I mean, I can talk about Mossman High. Don't worry, it's <laughs> positive. Um, uh, something that, strategic. Strategic. Something that I found very helpful, which I mentioned before, um, before this, uh, something we have a student support officer whose name is Haley. Um, she is brilliant in the sense that she acts like this, like mentor. Like she talks to students, she connects with them, she creates this relationship, and she helps you without it feeling. I don't know. I don't know. She helps you in a way that you feel supported, you feel like connected, and it does support your mental health, and you do feel better. Like after a chat with her you do feel, I guess, less stressed. Like, even in times of trials and in times of assessments, she was there to help you, and she's there to connect the students. Like, she, we have these, like, morning uh, lunches, just where kids get together, they play games, they chat. Very open space, very, like, mental health. She's trying to destigmatize mental health. I think that's what I'm trying to say here. And it really, truly helps in the sense, like, I will petition forever to have someone like Haley, a student support officer in every school because it's honestly helped me and I'm sure it's helped a lot of other students in the school just to have sort of a mentor yeah, there. Yeah. 
Wonderful. And you, you're looking at your, your own uh, three children. Uh, they're probably all a little bit different from one another. And, and, Completely but how, different. How, how do you feel as a parent or mother when, when you think about your own children's health and well-being and the schooling that they go to right now? Yeah, so my two boys go to Mossman High, my daughter goes to Monty. So, and I chose those schools because of their personalities, um, but I was very drawn to Mossman High because of the input they have into wellbeing and the importance. It wasn't just about getting you a good education, but it was about following a child's passion and giving them that passion and saying, you can do whatever you want with that passion and we're going to help get you there. And I know a lot of schools have that. And I think what I've learned is that teachers now are not just teaching their subjects. They're mentors, they're IT support people. They've learned how to do Zoom quicker than anybody that I think um, has over COVID. But they are... Um, playing such more of an important role in, in with my children, if they connect to their teacher, that's what they remember about that subject. And they want to do that subject more because they're loving the experience of that and they're loving the feelings they get in the classroom with that teacher. And I think that's hugely important for them. It doesn't matter what the subject is, but as long as they're passionate and they're enjoying it, I don't think you can ask for something better because you'll always excel. And I find my children that don't like the subjects Maybe because they haven't connected with that teacher and they find it hard. So following something that they love, they're always going to do well in. So I think with the way that the schools are, they're all trying to grapple with well-being. And I think lots of different schools are trying it on their own. Um, they, some schools have well-being committees and some have pastoral days. And I see schools really struggling for a purpose and a way to make well-being um, really important within their own environment, but they're all doing it off their own bat that I see as a parent. Do, do, do you think that in this society and other societies that we are, we are pushing our young people to grow up too fast? Uh, oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't think they have a choice to grow up fast. I think they are because they have all this digital technology. It's around them and, and they're so much more exposed to so many more things than what I was when I was 12 or 14. You know, I wasn't global, globally aware at that age. Um, but my children, they've got opinions on um, elections in the US. And, oh my gosh, the dinner conversation around our elections, that was amazing as well. And because they have so much more information, it just readily available to them. Yeah, we, we did a survey here a couple of years ago asking Australian parents the same question. Um, that do you feel that uh, we we are putting our children under pressure to grow up too fast, too young? Uh, what, what do you think is the percentage of parents who said yes in Australia? 80%. In the United States, in exactly the same survey, it was 88%. That the parents, mothers and, and fathers think that we are doing... We are kind of expecting our children to do things too young, too early, too fast, mm. too good. Is, is this, uh, Sharon, this is, comes back to your kind of a, uh, area. Remember that you're the only health expert in this room. <laughs> so I have nobody else to ask to turn to in this, this question. That, you know, if this is really how people feel, uh, is it kind of a concern from the, the health point of view? I mean, it's very interesting because um, adolescence is actually getting earlier. So puberty is, is actually so physically... It's like a physical thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, physically getting younger. It's... it's quite interesting. So um, 
we do quite a lot of, at our institute, we do a lot of adolescent health research with cohorts we're just following. And actually the physical signs of um, puberty are um, getting younger. So, so there's a physical marching backwards in age. And then of course there's all the other aspects where children are getting exposed to all sorts of media and, uh, and what does that sort of mean? And, and I think it's challenging, isn't it? Because you don't want to, part of that's just the natural difference between generations and different generations perceive where they're up to at different times. And part of it is this ex extraordinary exposure of very young girls and boys to um, a whole range of images and um, experiences. And yet that is their world. So I think we're at this really interesting point in time with the, the navigation of how to go forward is really unclear. And you know, I were talking previously how much more challenging it is now trying to, to parent in today's age than it, than it was even a decade ago. Yeah. I want to go into this, um, and you raised this question about technology and all these gadgets that people have in a moment. But when I look at this audience, I'm just going to make sure, because you're, most of you are parenting experts and uh, you have a proper view on this. Is there anybody who would like to uh, join in the conversation at this point about how we are, how we are raising our children? Are we doing the right thing? Are we doing too much? We are all different. Different parents? Yes. So we, we, do, we do it differently depending on what our parents did for us, depending on our social and economic circumstances, depending on what the parents of our friends' children do. It's, it's, it's all very complex. But do you, do you recognise this fact that if people are honest when they uh, reply to these questions of whether we are pushing our kids to grow up too fast, do you see this? Around when you when you look at the other people I don't around think you, parents are, but I think the society, yeah, context in which they're growing up, okay, may well be typical of the childhood okay. that we enjoy. Excellent, thank you. Um, so I wonder if that kind of um, it's a type of virtue sig signaling, you know, that your you know your your children don't get as much screen time as that parents' children. You know, there's a lot of judgment that goes in the parenting world as you observe that yeah. happens in terms of this this ongoing debate around what is appropriate in terms of how much access kids get to the internet yeah. Yeah, yeah. and how much they get to digital media and digital material. Yeah. And I, I do wonder, um, I also had a question around that as well, is, is, is resilience really the thing to do with health? Right. Right. Is resilience help? And resilience is that part of saying no, resisting the dopamine highway that the internet or the gaming does supply. Yeah. I do wonder, as an outsider, observing that kind of, you know. Excellent. I'll take one more thing and then we continue conversation. Yes, please. Go ahead. I was just going to question what it means when the game children growing up too fast. Right. I think. Your children are probably more capable than we sometimes believe them to be. And, um, yeah, just I'm, I'm questioning that premise of the growing up to class and what, what do you mean by Thanks, Benny. Thank you. Thanks for this question. Uh, so, um, you know, there, there is like this uncertainty still well, if we talk about technology and, and how it affects our health or young people's health. Some people say that there is a there's a directional uh, correlation between the uh, amount of time we spend with these gadgets and 
the, the quality of our health or well-being. But then there are those who kind of argue that we don't know that yet. And that's why, you know, this is a tricky conversation. But the, the other topical question that has been in the media um, uh, regularly during the last few years is the, uh, the question whether we should somehow regulate or control the, the use of digital media and technology, smartphones of young people. And since we have the, the, these uh, two experts looking at, you, you're, the, you're the child yourself, or not child anymore because you're 18, but you used to be a child, <laughs> the former child, <laughs> and, the, and the mother working with children is that. So, so what have you used, how would you respond to this question uh, that has been in every state and territory here and almost every country in the world that we should ban smartphones in high schools. I think the question of primary schools is clear. That I think primary school age children are too young to have the smartphone anyway. So I think nobody should have uh, before you are old enough to understand what it is. But how would you, how would you speak about the, this idea of, of banning the technology in order to... Um, you know, affect positively to the, the health and well-being or learning in a school? Or are there other, other options than that? Uh, uh, do I, I think I, Will and I are very along the same lines, aren't we? Okay, start. Uh, and you call first. Okay, okay. I think ban is a terrible word. And I think why, it's why terrible, is that? absolutely terrible. Because you, uh, banning something implies that you're um, saying it's naughty and it's bad and, you know, you can't control it. I think we have to normalise phones because it's part of their life, whether you like it or not. And I think it's up to, at the very forefront, a parent to normalise the usage of a phone. But I don't think it's up to a school to ban it. I think they can have controls around it. Mm. So maybe you go to school and it's normal to put your phone in your bag, in your locker for the day. And then it's normal to go home with your phone in your bag and get it out and ring mum and say, I'm on the bus. But I don't think banning it is the right approach. So maybe we change the dialogue around the needs of the phone because whether you like it or not, these phones are in their world. We have to teach children from the moment they get their phone how to use it responsibly and that's up to us. So if they're not using it correctly and they don't have measures in place of how to look after their phone responsibly or know that, you know, there are chances you are going to see X, Y and Z and what's going to happen if this scenario happens. But if I think if we can give our children the tools and the resilience around how to use a phone and how important it is, that's probably the most important thing because I think banning is not an answer. I think we have to normalise and make it part of our world, part of their school world. I don't say necessarily having them in the classroom but knowing when they can pick their phone up, because it's such a knee-jerk reaction, I think even for adults and myself, you know, we'll pick it up and check a time and then, oh, we'll just check the news feed, you know. We're, we're on our phones all the time. But the power to pick it up and then put it down there and go, oh, it's just there. I can turn it over and that world's away. So I think banning is perhaps a dialogue that needs to change to how do we normalise yeah, phones yeah. and have an etiquette around it. So we'll, what do other people, what do you and your colleagues, your friends think about this question? I mean, I also disagree with banning phones. Uh, we discussed it um, at school as well when this whole debacle um, came along. Um, I, as in phones? It's uh, no, as in, as in <laughs> when the Shore incident and this whole banning phones thing ah. really came through. Um, I think phones 
do have a negative aspect to them, but also there are a lot of positives that come with phones. And I guess what we have to consider is how do we want to get rid of the negatives yet the positives at the same time, or is mm -hmm. there a way we can regulate it that you still have this social aspect, you still have... Like, to be honest, if you're banning phones because maybe it's distracting, students find ways to be distracting. I'm sorry, it's, it's inevitable. You can dawdle on your book, you can chat to a friend next to you. Um, I think finding ways that you can keep positive aspects of having a phone on you, like you said, in an emergency, having a phone, excellent. Um, in social aspects, like me texting my friends at lunch, where are you guys? Like, it, obviously that's a very specific <laughs> scenario. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, it, it does, there are some positives to having phones and there are some negatives. It's a way of finding the positives yet maybe reducing the amount of negatives okay. that comes so, with it. Sharon, is there any, any room for this type of argument that by banning these phones that some of the states and, and many countries have done now uh, would have proven health uh, implications for young people? In, in other words, that, that somehow young people would feel better and healthier and, uh, and learn, learn more in a school if we just take these, uh, these, these devices away? Well, I'm not aware of any good trials that have sort of banned in some areas and not banned in other areas and seen whether or not... Maybe we should do one, actually. Maybe we should yeah. we could actually do one. That's a good idea, Pazzi. Um, but, but, but what I will say is, and it's just been really interesting even hearing Anne and Will, is the power of co-design. So, you know, if you get actually young people and their parents around the table... Um, thinking about what would work. Because what's interesting here, Will, he's not suggesting I want a phone in the classroom all the time to just, you know, muck around on. He recognises already mm. that there's limitations. They, they often impose more limitations on themselves when you start talking to them right. than you can ever think up. So just... Because um, I think this is something um, that's going to be really important in even all of our... the sort of work you and I are doing, which is bringing the voices of... Um, parents bring the voices of children and young people, and bring the voices of community to thinking about what could the what could what could our regulation of um, phones look like? But actually, what could the whole thing look like? Mm. Because it, people are so innovative. Yeah, L let me turn to you, people, w one more time, and um, because you have, you must have an opinion to this same question, <laughs> okay? That if you think about your own children or or somebody else's kids in a school, can you? Can you show me your view by putting up, raise your hand if you, if you think that we should ban smartphones in high schools? Put your hand up so that you can see, okay? Good, wonderful. So um, this is what it is, <laughs> interesting. Now, I would love to turn into the, um, the, probably the most interesting part of the evening now and invite all of you to, to First, think with us and then join the conversation. And this is, this is about imagining the future uh, of um, Australian schools. Um, and, you know, we have seen the headlines in the, in the media, um, Productivity Commission saying that it's the time to shake up the Australian school system and think, uh, have bold new ideas and uh, disrupt and transform and all those words, uh, which may be good. Good idea, uh, maybe maybe not in some some other cases. But tonight we are we are really looking at this health issue, that whether we we should uh, consider teaching health and also well-being uh, in every school in the future here in Australia, and keep those th those things and skills 
uh, at the same level of importance than literacy and numeracy. And, and you know, the good news is that this Productivity Commission that is now considering um, or preparing the next uh, national schools reform agreement uh, actually includes this idea of well-being, well-being as something that has outcomes that we should monitor and measure those outcomes. Um, but let's you know let's put these creative hats on for for a moment and uh, talk a little bit about what, what what do you see if the schools here in the future would be places where health would be taught as a skill? Is this something that we should be thinking about, or what would it look like, Sharon? <laughs> oh, but, okay. We, we, Will is ready to, yeah, ready to yeah, speak. Yeah, so. Will. Okay. We know you want to. I mean, like any other skill, I feel like it has to be in practice. Like in an ideal world, ideal education system, honestly, having mental health completely destigmatized, where you're free, like you were saying, teachers have almost become these mentors, where you're free to talk about your mental health, you're free to talk about your well being and practice those skills to like increase your well-being or to a positive effect like i think that having this stigma around mental health has like stopped a lot of progression it stopped a lot of innovation because a lot of people don't want to talk about their mental health a lot of people don't want to talk about their well-being and i think by i said destigmatized a million times but by doing that we are able to bring forth an environment where people can practice positive well-being they can practice being open they can practice being free i guess and that will have a positive effect on themselves being able to express themselves being able to openly talk about how they feel and get the skills to not only do that in schools, but then take that beyond schools because it's important, like, because skills you learn in school, you want to be able to be transferable in life. And I think having that openness and well being, like, openness and positive well being in yourself is extremely important in the future. And I think ideally, that's what I would want to see in schools this sort of openness, this sort of freedom to express yourself and talk about your feelings and not feel this shame and stuff and get support for it, to be honest. So when you, when you think about the future, you're speaking mostly about well-being. But well, is, is, the health, is the health a different thing for you? No. I mean, uh, honestly, like health in general, like mental health, that, it's the same thing. The well-being, mental health, I've kind of put them together, which is kind of bad. Um, but like even talking about your mental health, being open about expressing yourself, your mental illnesses is the first step in healing and br like bringing this positive health in general. And if you're like you're extending to other versions of health, uh, you've got like, I guess like sexuality, you've got gender identity, like being free in expression, being open to yourself is incredible. And it's the, like if you're, and like even like sexual health, like all the different kind of styles of health, I think destigmatizing it, really letting people have an open conversation about it is really important for the future of students and the future of, I guess, education in general. Let me, let me go to Anne next. I think parents have to learn more about mental health too. I think we all have to learn more about, you know, pushing our little people out into a positive space. Um, I think mental health is hugely important at school. Um, 
And I think schools are really trying to find ways to encourage that within their own environment. Um, you might have little Johnny who gets 100% in math and 100% in French and all these wonderful things, but if little Johnny is so scared to get out of the bus and walk into the front gate, how good is little Johnny going to be out in the world? And they're those skills that we have to help and nourish, I suppose, and support and train. And I don't think it's just up to the schools, but I think it's such a big part of the schools because, you know, the playground in recess and lunch can be a really scary place for some kids. And learning those social skills is really important. And I think bringing mental health through as just as important as academia is um, crucial. I don't know how you do it, but I definitely think that scaffolding with peer supports or mentorships or there's got to be some ways that all of our schools can have a united um, discussion around mental health and, and how to um, instigate change for our children and support them. So in, in the future, should we be in the school somehow measuring or monitoring these mental health outcomes I as think well? so, for sure, because I think there's so many kids that leave the HSC and they crash and burn and don't mm. last the first term of uni. Uh, the uni dropouts are um, quite high. And so, you know, they get to uni and then they find it's not everything that they wanted and they're almost burnt out. So I do think it's really important, yeah. Sharon, what, what do you see when you look at the future? Well, I see um, opportunity, actually, is what I see. And this, um, we've talked about... Um, building it back fairer, and we've talked about um, building it back better, but I wonder if there's an opportunity in um, this idea of building it back different. And that's kind of a bit kind of blow your mind sort of stuff. What does that mean to build it back different? And so we've been talking about this idea of um, schools as multi-opportunity communities. And to me, um, there's three things. One is you measure what you value. So what are the sort of measurements we would put in place that would drive innovation in a sort of whole different way. So that's really interesting in terms of measuring health and wellbeing in the same way that we measured NAPLAN. We came up with this really awful acronym, I think it's NARWL, which is <laughs> you know, the National Assessment of Health, Wellbeing and Learning, but it's a shocking acronym. Um, not, not, saying, and, um, not saying that we've got all the answers, but wouldn't it be interesting to innovate if those kind of accountability measures were there and what would that look like? This, the second thing is, what would a school look like and um, if teachers weren't responsible for everything? And I, I feel for teachers that just get... Mm. I've kind of got everything pile on and, and, and are often feeling like they're working well outside their scope of practice. And, and I think that's very challenging. We're doing a, a program in um, Victoria called the Mental Health and Primary Schools, which is just working with primary school teachers to give them a language around mental health because there's suddenly... These classes are full of these kids... Um, they've got a number of behavioural and learning difficulties and it's just, it's incredibly challenging, so much focused on, on teachers. So, so, so that's the second aspect. And the third aspect of, is, like, well, who else would need to be in that school? Like, what would, it, what would the buildings look like? What, what, would you, what would a school look like if it wasn't built the way it was now, wasn't maybe even staffed the way it was now to do everything? Who else would be there if we were building human capability, and that's kind of what we're, where we're heading towards. Yeah. Uh, before I open this up to the, um, the, the audience and your, your uh, responses and, and experiences and, and questions as well, Sharon, could you say a little bit about this, why we do this, this work uh, and what we are trying to um, 
accomplish or get out of this. And it's, and it's probably worth reflecting why you and I um, came together in the first place, sure. which was actually around the idea of equity. And, and that's why I heard um, Parsi speak actually at a conference in Queensland, which seems like about 100 years ago, because it was pre-pandemic. And I thought, I reckon this guy thinks like me. And, and so we got together about this idea of um, the inequity we have. We're a rich country, and yet we have terrible inequities for Australian children in terms of their educational outcomes. And you know that translates into life outcomes, sadly. And yet we've got this amazing platform called Schools where children go you know, seven hours a day, five days a week, 40 weeks a year. And we just haven't been able to really fundamentally at a population level change those inequities. So that's, that's the first thing. And the second is the idea of prevention, that if we actually focus in those early years of primary school, we can fundamentally change children's health, wellbeing and learning trajectories. And I think those are the things that um, brought us together to thinking about what could we do in a system that would, at the end of it, have kids that were, had less inequitable outcomes, um, were doing better and were, as I said, creating human capability that would then feed into um, our society. They're the, the people that will become our society. So I think that's kind of what we're trying to, trying to do here together and being prepared, I think, to be wrong <laughs> and... Um, or oh, not ready. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and experiment and, yeah. and this, this paper doesn't come out, by the way, at the end of it and say, and here's, here's the answer. It comes out with a series of principles and provocations and um, a call to action, really, because we, that's kind of what we're, where we're sitting, isn't it? That's right, exactly. And we would like all of you to take this, this idea with you from here and, and think about it. And if you like it, share it with your, your colleagues and friends. And, and, and this type of conversation is the one that we try to, try to um, uh, help people to have in this community so that we can talk more about these things that sometimes obviously will look like we cannot do it. Uh, but we all we need to remember that this we live in a, one of the uh, wealthiest countries in the world, and anything is possible here if you just want to do it. And, and that's that's why we try to and want to provoke a little bit people also to think about uh, impossible things. We actually call it the misimpossible in the end, because we can we can do it if we want to do this uh, uh, this way. Um, now I think it's time to uh, time to turn to you. I've seen a couple of hands already up that you want to and. <laughs> And, and Lisa, you don't need to ask questions unless you want to, that you can also share your experience. I know that there are a couple of schools here that are already doing amazing things, so I would leave it to you to put your hand up and speak a little bit about what you do and why you do those things. Um, but we have a good time now to, to have a conversation. Let me, uh, let me go to you first. I think you, you were already... Yeah, it's you. Can, can you use your high school teacher's voice, please? <laughs> <laughs> Why I am just looking for some clarity. When you're speaking about health in schools, how would that be different to the PDHPE um, syllabus? Because um, I'm not a PDHPE teacher, but I am across the 7 to 10 syllabus document, which of all the KLAs is by far the most comprehensive. It just seems like something happens and we'll shove it into that syllabus document. <laughs> <laughs> What's the You're the only health expert here in the room. <laughs> but Will, you have an answer to this? I, He's a PDHP recipient. I am <laughs> a PDHP recipient. As someone who's in PDHP, you do receive 
a lot of this health that I was talking about, but I don't think it's enough. Like you get um, in PDHP, you might get like a few weeks on this, a few weeks on that, and as a whole, it's it's not. And like some things in the curriculum, you don't learn. I mean, some things about health you don't learn about because it's not in the curriculum. Like, um, obviously, when I was talking about sexual health before, you do a very small topic on that in PHP, and it's so vague. It very much, it doesn't really teach you anything, and I think it's very sort of old values, and I think, yes, PDHP does cover health, some things about mental health. It does cover physical health, because obviously physical health is shown to improve mental health in aspects. Yet, I don't think it's widespread enough to students. It's only a select few who choose PDHP, or obviously a lot of people do it from 7 to 10. I think everyone has to. But I think we need to focus more on it. You need, you need to go deeper than what PDHP offers. And I think uh, in aspects, you're missing out on sexualities, you're missing out on gender identities. There is, even in PDHP, there is this stigma of mental health. It's seen as like bad. It's like, oh, depression, anxiety, worst case scenario. It's like, no, even if you have depression, even if you have anxiety, you need to know the skills to work through it, to manage it. Like, how can you still have positive well-being and positive health while suffering those things, and that's something that PDHP doesn't teach you. It doesn't teach you the resilience, and it doesn't teach you how to go beyond, I think, uh, mental illness and stuff like that. Will, did you ever consider being a teacher? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Seriously. I have considered being a teacher. I, I'm actually a swim teacher, which is... Here we go. <laughs> Reaching, but it's kind of on the same. <laughs> okay, let me t let me take another comment over the you, please. Yes. I'm a primary teacher from regional New South Wales, and I think um, there's a lot of talk here about what we can do at schools, and we as teachers we do so much. But what we really want, like if I had a magic wand today, I would want speech therapists, OTs. <laughs> Now for our children to have access to health services and health specialists. We're not trained in that. Um, so we need access, better access, particularly regional and remote areas, to these services for our families. Can I ask you, do you, do you want to say the school where you're from? I'm from Albany North Public School. Okay, good. Uh, I guess if, if I'm not mistaken, Sharon, this is exactly what we have been <laughs> dreaming about, right? Or what do you say? It is almost a Victorian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, this is, this, you know, in, in my mind, when, I, when I'm kind of dreaming about this future school, it's exactly, uh, exactly like this. But I hear very clearly what you what and, you're saying. And meeting the needs of those kids in, in interesting ways, co-location, virtual. But, you know, that's the prevention aspect, isn't it, when you're picking up kids with all, you know, because primary school teachers are so good at doing that. And then layer on top of that all the equity of access issues, either geographic or socioeconomic, and there it starts. And, um, and so how do you build a school around that virtual, actual, meet the needs? And there's other people in the room here who do that sort of innovative things and build out from there. What are the other policies you need? What are, the, what are the bullying, everything from the bullying policies to where you plant your trees is all part of the health of a school. 
Wonderful. Next one, I see hands up over there. Yes, you please. Hi, um, so my name's Ella and I'm a strategy consultant focused on health. Didn't put up my hand because I was not my medical. <laughs> but I think my question again is probably around, and, and to that point of kind of the opportunity and the equity that we see here, the need for that. And it's about thinking around looking at what health could look like as a subject if we were to include some of that health literacy piece. Obviously, we see issues like diabetes and obesity really starting to cripple the health system, which is already really stressed as the education system is. Um, but it's looking at how we can bring some of that prevention piece earlier, and again, like using both together to kind of have the more facilities in schools that are health focused, and then that prevent bringing that prevention piece into schools where not every kid at home has parents who are able to teach them basic food, diet, and health basic physical health, knowing how to recognise certain signs and symptoms of, of physical and mental health issues that might arise, so looking at how some of that can be brought in to the system, I think, would be really cool. Do you want to comment on this, Sarah? Well, it's just, it's just a really interesting point in time. I don't know if everyone's aware, but for the first time in our history, um, the next generation is likely to live less long than the current generation. That's the first. So it's plateaued in Australia. In the US, <laughs> it's gone down. Soz. You can turn it around. You can turn it around. So, so, well, you should look to us and you should ask us what's our responsibility in thinking about that and what, what's really interesting, so um, why, you might ask. And, and it's chronic disease, actually. It's obesity, it's heart disease, it's the disease of life. Diseases associated with lifestyle choices. <laughs> Too much good life. And, um, and what we're starting to see, if you start looking under, we talked about this before, getting under the skin, is you see some of these blood pressure changes quite early in children, um, other sort of um, changes to um, vessels and things like that. So, so all the things we've talked about, stress, um, um, obesity, um, being in adverse um, circumstances, all these things get under the skin. And so this is the, the urgency we should have around prevention and equity because... These things are emerging early in kids' lives, but we have the chance to actually turn it around. This is not, it is not destiny. These are risks, it's not destiny. But on a population level, when you start to see things like life expectancy plateauing or going down, it should be a wake-up call to all of us to say, we've got to do something. And, and, there's, and it's not a tinkering at the edges <coughs> issue. It's a wholesale system issue. And I say that knowing that's not trivial. Yeah, that's right. Next one. There was somebody there in the behind. Yes, you please. I, I think I, I love what you're doing in, in terms of giving teachers and the professionals in the schools the language, because I think that's really important. We, I think we have to consider that, especially, I'm going to say people of my generation, that language is not there. Those issues were never dealt with. So we're trying to, to help kids deal with issues that we just put in the box, or we just, you'll be fine, you'll be okay, don't think about it, don't worry about it. And and you're right, it absolutely spot on in what you're saying, it has to go right across the board, it can't just be that one hour of PDHP, it has to be every day, every minute, across the whole school. But I think that people, teachers need, they need the support, they need the language, they need the, the checking in, how are you doing, how, how are you doing as a teacher to help? Your kids that you're trying to help. Right. Are you from your school teacher? Yeah. Yeah. Which school? 
Lafleur is on the kindergarten level. Okay, so excellent. Okay, beautiful. Thank you. Um, can I just can I just comment on that? Yes, absolutely. I think I absolutely one hundred percent agree with you, and I think what Anne was saying before. Um, I don't mean to dog on all the parents here, but there's also, I guess, maybe some aspect that parents can help in there. It's not only educating teachers to, uh, because obviously you guys have to probably have seen gone like children. You know when like mental illness and stuff like that. Not only educating you, but also educating um, parents so they know what how to support. They know what to look out for. So that there's like multi layers of support, multi layers of defence. So at home, at school, young children have that sort of support, and also young children know in what direction to go to. Like like you were saying, with lifestyle diseases coming up in the forefront, things like physical education and just knowing education in general, knowing what's bad for you, knowing what's good for you. Stuff I've learned in PDHP in year eleven and twelve, but that's not something that that's, it took me, what, 11 years of schooling to get to the point where I truly understand the negative effects of lifestyle. Um, so I think something, like you were saying, obviously people try and do that through physical education, like you've got like jump rope for heart and stuff like that. But I think there's, there's more to understand why we do jump rope for heart. Not just, oh, we do a bit of skipping. It's like, why are we actually doing this and how is this contributing to a better lifestyle, a better future for us, I think, kind I think of understanding schools, that. I, I know in some schools they host a lot of parent information nights on, you know, safe on social and um, a lot of well-being talks, but only 10% of the parents are turning up. So, and we can't just send our kids out the door and go, oh, they'll take care of it, it's fine, they're at school now. You know, that's why the teacher's role is so important and so undervalued. It needs to be... And whether you like it or not, if there are mentors in schools, sometimes those kids are just going to go to that teacher that they like the best. And so suddenly teachers have got to have the skills taught to them at uni and in prac of how to deal with these situations because whether they like it or not, it could be landing in their lap before they know it. So I think more support around our teachers is also really important. Thank you. I'm going to take a couple of uh, quick comments uh, from this side. Uh, you gentleman over there, and uh, and then I'll call to you over there. Just um, riding on players coattails. Um, what, what about thinking? There's obviously metropolitan city schools, um, city schools that are doing it, but regional schools have been facing uh, adversity well before COVID. I mean, had decades of drought and unbelievably devastating fires that probably every farm kid at my school is still seven pounds on the into um, you know floods and our little third friends. Um, and then on top of not having access, what we found last year with some uh, somewhat anecdotal data out of the HS7s that regional schools were uh, maintaining their scores, so to speak, and in some instances actually improving. Um, and we found that in disadvantaged perceived disadvantaged schools as well. What about, you know, going to the source of good and finding out, okay, you know, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. Very good. Another one over here. Which which school can you say the name? Oh, you don't want to do that. No, I, I will. Um, I'm the nature school primary. Okay. Um, and so, you know, even though we're an independent 
progressive school, which is a new one, we do cater for students of low socioeconomic status uh, and those who, you know, don't fit the mould of our mainstream schools. We get a lot of kids who come to us who are struggling in our primary sectors and we are have been called the last hope for some of those children. I think for me the, the bit that that angers me is we try to say that we've got to put, you know, it's a parent's responsibility to teach them mobile phone etiquette. It, the parents that I see don't even know what goes on. You know, mm. I was just recording because I had to write a question. <laughs> but it was like, in my small socioeconomic school, my role, I'm not just an educator. I worked out that I'm a psychologist and speech therapist, no tea. I'm a parenting specialist, not a marriage counsel, which I never know. <laughs> I'm also, you know, I am more than just an educator. And we have this term at our school of um, you you have to Maslow before you bloom. Yeah. 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 And that's what I think we need to remember as educators is we aren't all catering for students of high socioeconomic status. Come to the regional areas, come to, I mean, the ones from Kempsey, come and have a look at the schools that and the children we have in our care. It, it's sad, it really is. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't about your food and it, yeah, we have to feed and shelter, them, and we have to give some love, care, and trauma informed practice prior yeah. to yeah. education. Thank, thank you very much for bringing me this. Beautiful. Now, I, I'm, I'm going to take a couple of more comments uh, or stories from you, and then um, this wonderful panel will have a, um, a final round of your reflections and, and comments before. We have to finish, unfortunately, uh, 8 o'clock sharp, <laughs> because we are going to go and have drinks in the opera park. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let me let me go over there. You, yes. I am hearing all of the different stories, and I think it's right that we're all talking from very privileged positions here about the ideas of health. And I think that there is not a one-stop health value or solution for all these different contexts, and we don't have to travel just so far. Working out in Fairfield, vaping is a huge issue, and whilst we're not talking about mental health there. I'm sorry, I didn't think about, you know, body, I'm seeing self-harm. Then the department closes toilets, so access to even using bathrooms for adolescent girls is limited. So we really have huge conversations around basic access in some of our schools, which are only like 20 kilometers from here. It's not that far, we could all go. Okay, so we're very, you know, the distance from Mossman discussions like that. Yes, it's only a short distance, and it's very wide. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Yep. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, um, like, the, a lot of the same issues is faced at Mossman. It's, I think every school probably has all the same issues. I, oh, 100%. No, I'm not arguing with you there. Um, I think, I guess, trying to find a way that, like you were saying, is equitable, trying for everyone, because like, you, like we've been hearing all these 
like regional schools, there are a lot less resources. And I think there's a lot more, I guess, care and indication like that has to be put forth into there to try and, I guess, um, make up for that, which is unfortunate, but it's true. It's like, it's unfortunate. Like I'm hearing that story is, uh, was like heartbreaking. Um, but it is, I mean, I guess it's something that we have, we have to confront because it's like we can't live in this sort of ideal world because there are schools like that and there are people like that and it's something we have to kind of face and it's like that sort of destigmatizing this sort of, mm. I guess, conversation. Yeah. Did, did you ever consider becoming a minister of health? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one more, one la last thing to over here. Who would like to have the last word? Yes. Um, I think it's fabulous that we're having these conversations, um, but I do want to worry that if we're hoping to situate health professionals in schools, which I think is an amazing idea, there's actually a shortage of health professionals. So I think we need to think about how we, you know, the sort of multi-tiered systems of support and then what's intervention things of upskilling teachers, not that I want to put more but yeah, about models of intervention because we there aren't enough OTs and speeches and psychologists and whatever at the moment, and that's not going to change in the immediate future. So how thinking about ways of yeah supporting teachers to support students. Is this a Scottish accent? <laughs> Beautiful. I'd really love to listen to you a little bit more, more than that. But <laughs> not in the opera part. <laughs> I'm, do, I'm taken. Do you want me to fish you out of this particular... Would you like me to fish you out of this hole, Pazzi? <laughs> Pazzi, can I just say, the whole idea of response to intervention, and um, there's a, a very famous public health... Uh, I call him a rock star, Sir uh, Professor Michael Marmot, and uh, he's actually from New Zealand, but we pretend he's Australia, but he's not really either. Um, he's from the UK, but he really revolutionised our thinking about this idea of something called the social gradient, which was that... Um, depending on your educational background, your health was actually determined. This idea of, of linking together your circumstances and health, and he was one of the first people who talked about it. But he talks about this idea of proportional universalism, which is essentially what you're talking about in response to intervention, and we do the same thing in our family and child health nurses, for example, which is kind of everybody gets something, but if you deliver the same to everybody, you actually increase inequalities. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the ability to deliver small groups, for example, around language and literacy that's going to address the needs of children who might have a literacy issue or small groups around something in behaviour. Within the school, it's the, it's the same stuff, but delivered with different intensity to kids who might need it. And that sort of... Um, that's the MTSS or RTI, depending on what you're into. But it's that ability for schools to be able to pivot within their own resources. But, but some kids actually are going to obviously need health professionals as well. But that innovation, thinking, what are we doing? How do we meet our kids' needs? That's where, that's where obviously some schools are going, and that's fantastic. Thank you. And last final reflections. What are you hearing? Oh, there's so many ideas and not enough answers, isn't there? So um, I hope that schools uh, are supported more widely from government and syllabus. I hope that they think differently about learning. I hope that children, you know, don't have to do year seven and year eight and they have to do a science. Why can't they follow their passions? Because that 
is going to help them succeed in the long run. I hope there's more support for our teachers and respect and more higher regard for our teachers and our principals and what they do and, and, and what they have to deal with every day. You think as a mother in a home of three kids, I'm like, wow, wow, there's a lot of things being thrown at me. Some days people are happy. Sometimes we've lost our shoes. Sometimes you can't find a hairbrush and you can't get in the car to get to school. And we deal with that on a micro level, but imagine what our teachers are going through. So I wish there was more resources and respect for our teachers and more investment in them to broaden their support for our children in mental health. Um, Can I just add something for that? Go. Very briefly. But, like, I feel like, like you were saying, extra resources. I feel like if teachers are happy, the students are going to be happy. Exactly. Because... Exactly. <laughs> because, I mean, teachers are a role model for many students, for many children. And I think if a student is seeing a teacher stressed, overwork, uh, like tired, anxious... It lost their passion. Lost their passion. Like, yeah. it, it, obviously, like, teachers, you guys power through. But, like, it, it, I guess, like, it, there's an opposite. Like, if you have a teacher who obviously loves their work who comes into work every day happy and is not, yet again, over t like tired, overstressed, overworked, it will have a huge impact on students. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a very positive way to increase uh, students' health and well-being because they'll see these amazing role models and then they can encompass some of that. And I think that is, will have a huge effect on students. Right. I wish that you would be our next... Uh... <laughs> Premier. <laughs> yes, so if, if you're still unsure, you can, you can think about that. But uh, Sarah, now, now we have had this uh, conversation and, and heard from these people, and I hope that you take this text with you and, and think about it and get back to us. But what, what, would, you, um, what would you tell these people in this room now uh, as a next thing? That what, what do we want to happen with this project? Well, first of all, I also want to thank everyone. Um, I know you keep saying I'm the only health expert in the room. <laughs> You're yeah, not I'm, anymore. There's one, uh, somebody there's else. Too. But, but also, <laughs> I feel very privileged to be in this room um, um, amongst extraordinary educators as well. And so that's a real privilege. And I think the next steps is I, I find the professional paradigm sometimes get in the way of having good conversations. And that's why it's such a delight to just be having a conversation about what we want for our kids and to take some of our... Um, professional paradigms off and we need everybody thinking around the table this is these are not simple solutions that are required we're sitting in complexity and we kind of have to navigate our way through it and that means everyone's has to come to the table so um, I, what I'd like to see is we've, we've put out this call love to hear what people think in, innovation and and we'll hopefully write a bit more and we're hoping to have a a round table where we might bring some people together, again, to create more provocation. There are countries around the world that are thinking differently, and I think we're hoping that Australia might be, just even across the ditch in New Zealand, and we're hoping that Australia might be willing to experiment, aren't we? Yeah. And, yeah. and experiment with you and with children, young people, and with parents together, because um, it's, it's scary to think that if we don't... If we don't steer the ship differently, if we, d we don't, we just, you know, the definition of insanity is keep doing the same thing and expect a different outcome, and that, that scares me. Yeah. 
So if you, if there's anybody in the room who knows anybody who has a lot of money to support our research and work, <laughs> let let us know because we really need we need help to get this done. Nice but, one, Pazzi. Nice yeah. one. Oh, is it a good one? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Thank, thank you so much, people. You know, it's, it's so lovely to see all of you here. Um, uh, it's lovely to see some of my students here. Uh, it's beautiful to have uh, our children's commissioner in the room um, and many others. Uh, you know, these are the, exactly the conversations we, we need to have. And um, uh, I hope that there will be there will be a next one where we can have these roundtable conversations. But I would particularly like to uh, thank these amazing guests here and, and Will, our future Prime Minister of the country. <laughs> and Sharon, thank you. That was Parsi Salberg in conversation with Professor Sharon Goldfeld, Anne King and Will Osborne. Special thanks to Professor Salberg for curating this series of urgent conversations about the education sector. You can find all three episodes of this special series wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back again soon with more ideas at the house. <laughs>